Please be seated. Good evening to you. I want to say uh, good evening to a couple of my friends as well. Pastor Matt and Alicia, we love you. And good evening to you uh, also. Let's turn on our Bibles to Psalm uh, 8 this evening, Sunday night. We go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And if you're here tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up with the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just get their attention, wave to them. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And then if you don't own a Bible, uh, please take that one home and make that a gift from the Lord to you uh, this evening. This Psalm 8 is a psalm that is a celebration of God's excellence. And David writes and he says, O Lord, our Lord. I'm glad he's the Lord, but I'm also glad for that our O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And then you notice as you get into verse 9, he ends the psalm the same way. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all of the earth. And so it begins with the same uh, description by David of God, that his name, God's name is excellent in all of the earth. It's a psalm that's of pure praise. Uh, David doesn't ask God for anything. Uh, There's no, uh, doesn't want anything, no requests that he makes or anything like that. It's lifted up to the Lord. It's just pure praise that he lifts up to the Lord and he praises the excellence of the Lord's name in all of the earth. It's important when we read the Old Testament to realize what a name represented to the Jewish people and what when people are writing like David of the name of the Lord, how they're thinking about it. It's a little different than in our culture. In our culture, when, uh, for instance, we have children, uh, if we do, well, we give them a name. And uh, basically, we think of some kind of a goofy uncle or a aunt that meant so much to us or a grandparent or some relative or just a name that we like. And we attach that name to that child. It becomes their means of identification so that we can call their name and they can be differentiated from the other one child or two or three or four children or if they're in a pack at school. And so we kind of pick out names that way and we attach them in, in that, uh, that kind of a way. In the Hebrew culture, a name, the name always represented the character of the person. So you wouldn't just think of their name as a means of, okay, that's their name, and now I know how to I differentiate them from their six friends. The name represented not only that person, but their character. And you would mention their name, and to your mind would also come into mind the character of the person that was being spoken of. And so that's what a name represented to the Jewish people. And so when he speaks of the name of God, he's talking about and celebrating the name of God. He's not celebrating Yahweh or Jehovah, some technical name. He is celebrating the character and the nature of God, who God is and and what God uh, is. In that... Uh, uh, Jesus, he, when he spoke of himself and he said, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's not a promise where we all just go, okay, wait a second. And we've all got a Porsche Carrera waiting for us out in the parking lot. Get to trade in the Yugo and in, my, in Jesus' name we asked for this and that's what's waiting for us. Jesus is making a promise that whatever we ask that's consistent with his nature, consistent with his priorities and these kind of things, then we can be confident that God is going to give, uh, answer those prayers affirmatively in our lives. It doesn't mean he's going to say yes to uh, any, anything and everything and certainly not anything that's inconsistent with his nature or with his will. And so he's praising God for the excellence of his nature. And I like the word excellent isn't like uh, God, you're pretty good or you're very good, takes the greatest word that he can think of and the fact that as he, again, as we even prayed here tonight, the more you come to know God, the more you realize that excellence is the word that is reserved for him and then to realize the more we come to know him, we'll never back off from the word excellence. We'll always be kind of grappling for a, a new and better word 
though there won't be a vocabulary for it in the human language to describe him. And so he is excellent, and David wanted to just praise him for his excellence. And so he begins to list three things that uh, he thinks about related to the Lord that produce praise in him related to the nature of God. And he said, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence uh, the enemy and the avenger. And so he's going to talk about God's, you know, great strength being demonstrated. And here he talks about God's excellence being demonstrated in strength. We think of his strength as his ability to create the heavens and the earth, speak it into existence, all of these things. He's going to get into that in verse 3, but it's fascinating where he starts. He doesn't start where we tend to start. And But David, in verse 2, he marveled at God's use of something as small and weak as children to silence the voices of his enemies. You take a man, uh, take the most eloquent man in the whole world with a Ph.D. in atheism. That, that covers a lot of Ph.D.s today, by the way. But you take a man who is absolutely brilliant and with great... Uh, communication skills, Ph.D. in atheism, and you put him on the stage in a great theater and you allow him for an hour to rant against God, against the existence of God before that uh, audience, and then allow him to excuse himself from that particular stage, and then you follow him with a children's choir singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And I guarantee you he'll win that room. And the children win the room. And the reason they win the room is because God makes sure that they win the room. And you'll have, no matter how hard the heart of an adult is in that room, how jaded they are against God, there will be something that they see in that child that they will wish that could be true of them. The simplicity of their faith, the beauty of their praise. And that's why when Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem on the week before he, the Sunday before he was going to be crucified, and all of the people are praising him, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they're praising him, and the children are singing praises to Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem, and the religious leaders of the Jews, they stepped up and they protested and called on him to stop this emotional expression of what was going on here in him accepting that kind of praise and worship from not only the crowd but also uh, the faith of children being uh, exhibited there. And, and so they called on him to uh, silence all of it. And what Jesus did is he then quoted this particular verse it, from this particular psalm, and Jesus said to them, Matthew chapter 21, he said, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you, speaking of the Father, have protected, you have perfected praise. And, and Jesus knew they were under conviction. Jesus knew they were being publicly shown up by children. Because this love and faith that comes from children directed toward Jesus, it exposed the hostility and the rejection of these religious leaders for the really ugly and perverted thing that it was. It's interesting that Jesus, when he commends faith, uh, he commends and uses an example, not adult faith. We think that sometimes everything that... Uh, that uh, that everything that is to be learned in life, children are, it's kind of a one-way thing. They will learn everything from us. We really have nothing to learn from children. Been there, done that. Already been children. But Jesus commended childlike faith. And he used childlike faith as the great example of faith and not adult faith in terms of trusting in him for salvation. Not childish faith, but childlike faith. 
There's the simplicity of looking and, and you take a child and you just speak to them of the fact that God loves them. God has sent his son to save them. They've been made for a relationship with God. You raise that child in the things of the Lord and you watch that child blossom under those things and, and they become the example of where beautiful childlike faith can lead to. And so here is God. You think about, look at the machinery that is put in place all around the world to silence God's voice, uh, to silence his witness through his people, and yet his voice is not silenced, never has been, never will be, no matter how great the persecution is, because Jesus is always going to make sure that that voice of the weak, of the child, is always going to have the stronger impact in human history than of the atheist. And the voice of childlike faith is, is the superior thing that silences the other group. That's why it threatens them. That's why they want to turn it off. It, it exposes them for the mean little people that they are and, and the folly of what they believe that they would try to extinguish that kind of thing in a child or in adult when the beauty of what God is producing in them is incomparable compared to what atheism or any other ism would produce in a person. And I think that's beautiful to realize. God's excellence is demonstrated in terms of his strength in the praise of children. When I consider your heavens, he said, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. And so now David comes to speak of the heavens. God's strength uh, made evident through his creation. Now he speaks here about the heavens. He talks about the moon, the stars. So David is, while he writes the psalm or he's thinking about this psalm, he is thinking about a... Uh, a nighttime. He doesn't talk about the sun, doesn't talk about the sunrise, he'll talk about that other places. But here he is, and remember David was a shepherd boy. So how many nights did he spend in the field with those sheep and you just lay down your back on the ground and uh, it's just him and his iPod and, and just to pass the time away? <laughs> he didn't have any of that stuff. So you're going to become an expert on the constellations and all of the different things. And so he looks up, and as he just looks up there, he is in awe of this God that has uh, uh, created all of this and keeps all of this in its uh, proper order. And as he sits there and he thinks about that, the idea is, that's my God. My God has created that. My God keeps all of that running. And that's the thought that he has as it relates to the power of God. Psalm 8 is a great Yosemite psalm. Not Yosemite Sam. It's a Yos great Yosemite psalm. It's a great, uh, you know, at the ocean psalm, camping psalm. It's a great psalm for the outdoors as you just look at everything and, and you, you just wonder and marvel at it and, uh, and to realize my, it isn't just like, isn't these amazing constellations to realize we, we spend so little time doing it in kind of civilization, but to just stop and to look at it someplace where you can actually see through the smog and everything and see all of that and to realize not only is that beautiful, but my heavenly father did that and he looks after me. And then he says, as he thinks about the greatness of the heavens, he said, then what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? And so God's excellence demonstrated in his dealing with man. He looks at that whole big, you know, summer night sky. And he realizes, look, think about how God big is, how big he is, that he created all of that. And yet he's mindful of me. Here's little old David, just a little old tiny guy. You get that kind of Google satellite. You have to zoom all the way down to see him lying in that field. He says, you did all of that, and yet you are mindful of me. And the Bible says that he's mindful of us. Look at later in Psalm 139. It says that, that we can't even number 
the amount of thoughts that he has for us. His thoughts toward us are in number as the sand of the sea. And that's a way of saying you cannot number them. That's how much he thinks about you tonight. Say, God, I wish you knew what was going on in my life. Oh, boy. Oy vey, what are you? Oh, oh. you know? And then the amazing thing. I mean, we can look and say, yeah, he's thinking about me. I'm going to give you, I'll tell you, you know. But the Bible says that also that his thoughts toward us are good. That's amazing. That's amazing grace, really. So he's thinking about us. And David thinks, man, here you are. You're this great God, and yet you think of me individually, and that you visit man. In other words, you choose to be actively involved in our lives. It's just about every single day. I, just think, I think about what God is doing just to keep track of me. And then I know he's doing it with you. And then I know he's doing it in our whole city. And I know he's doing it in Bombay. And he's doing it in Argentina. And he's doing it in Moscow. And he's doing it in Venice and all over the whole world. But he, the, the affairs and, uh, that he's involved in, in all of our lives. And so he visits us. He's actively involved. And so this personalness of him as a God, he said, speaking of us, for you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with honor, with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. And so he thinks about the greatness of God, and he marvels at the greatness of God in terms of what God has entrusted to man's oversight in the world. And David is thinking about all of the physical, God, in creating an Adam and Eve, and he gave them dominion over the earth. Even despite the fall, we have a dominion over the earth. We can dominate the earth as human beings. And so the earth is a stewardship that's been given to us by God, and he just marveled at the fact that you hand this over to us to take care of this physical world for your glory. What would David think if he had, in the New Testament, if he had heard Jesus say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's not even talking about a spiritual thing here. He's just talking about keeping the physical world and the seasons and, and, and harvesting and planting and sowing and all of that. Think about the marvel as it relates to God that he has entrusted the gospel to us. When I th- for us to share, when I think about... God entrusting something great to us because we have a greater revelation than David had. I don't think, wow, we get to farm as wonderful as farming is. We get to forestry as wonderful as forestry is. For us, we think about, wow, what is the great thing that he has entrusted to us? He has entrusted the message of everlasting life to us. You think about what kind of a psalm would David have written under the influence of the Great Commission I think he would have added a few more verses. We're not going to ruin a psalm for you or for David. And he says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all of the earth. I think about uh, David here and, and um, the psalm here as he writes this psalm testifying uh, to the the creation of God, the mindfulness of God, that God visits us. And I think again about the fact that we are able to know of the excellence of God in a, in a measure that David, he could only have dreamed of if he knew it was even possible. Think about the excellence of God in human history. You say, what psalm would David have written from the foot of that cross? of the excellence of God. That God found a way to remain absolutely just and still be the justifier or the savior of sinful man. 
So we have, we with David, we join in him in his praise in Psalm 8 for all of the things that he praised the Lord. He did it to the fullest extent of his revelation. Our revelation is far greater. God is excellent. And we praise him, praise the Lord for that tonight. Then in Psalm uh, 9, as we come into this, this is a beautiful psalm expressing the heart of uh, the righteous who are living in the midst of the wicked of the world. And so here we are, we are in the world, and there's this great battle that goes on between uh, good and between evil. We are in that battle. We are on one side of things in that battle. But for thousands of years, God's people have been in that battle and, and, uh, and have prayed with God an awful lot about that situation. And the psalm really communicates that wickedness is not going to prevail, but God is going to uh, prevail. He says, I will praise you, O Lord. And then here's the key to the whole psalm, with my whole heart. That's worth highlighting or underlining, my whole heart. And I will tell of your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. He's going to get in in just a moment here in the nitty-gritty of just how bad the world is that he's in the middle, how much evil there is, how much difficulty there is in being a righteous person in a fallen world and in the exaltation of of the wicked. But he worships the Lord at the beginning of the psalm, says, I'm going to praise you, Lord, with my whole heart. And what he's communicating is that no matter how bad things get in the world, no matter how wicked things get in the world, we can still worship God with our whole heart. Our relationship with God lies outside of the reach of anything that happens in this world. Nobody can touch that relationship. Nobody can take it away from us. No, they can't take that away from me. Nobody can take that away from us. And so no matter how wicked things get in the world, that relationship is always there. It's always consistent. And we can have, no matter how wicked the world gets, we can have as intimate and personal relationship with God as we want to have. And so wholeheartedness for the Lord, nobody can touch our relationship with Him no matter how bad things get. One of my enemies, verse 3, turn back. They shall fall and perish at your presence, for you have maintained my right cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness, You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever. And so we can commit the judgment uh, of the wicked to God. And and David expresses his confidence that God is ultimately going. He's already has, but ultimately in a practical sense, prevail against the wicked and uh, that are personally opposing uh, David. He said, O enemy, destructions are finished forever. You have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall administer judgment for the peoples of the right, uh, for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also uh, will be a refuge for the oppressed. So in the, while this wickedness is going on and we're waiting for God uh, to uh, judge wickedness, God will be a refuge for the oppressed. Again, that relationship with him, a refuge in time of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Prepare his, declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. And so God is going to keep the righteous no matter what the condition of the world becomes. Have mercy on me, David wrote. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. And the idea is that they hate him for being righteous. You who lift, uh, you who lift me up from the gates of death that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down 
in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands, meditation or selah, which means to just stop for a moment and give some consideration uh, to what it is that he has uh, just said here. It is interesting when he talks there in verse 15 about the nations sinking down in the pit which they have made. There's no future in sin. You know, the crazy thing about the wicked and their fight against uh, the righteous is if there aren't any more righteous, if the righteous were not there to fight against and the wicked had their own way, they would completely destroy the world. It's, it's only the context and the health and the beauty that the righteous produce in the world that makes the wicked even want the world that's been produced by the righteous. And they don't realize that to defeat the righteous and to gain it is, to, is going to be, end up with a world that's completely different from the one that is attractive to them. It's kind of, it's, it's so, it's so crazy to be the devil. Not that I know anything about it. But the devil is so proud and he's so arrogant. And, and that, that's one of his characteristics of pride. And the thing about pride is that it blinds you. The person that's proud is blind to the fact that we are proud. We're too blind to recognize our pride. So he always overplays his hand. And that's why you see wickedness rise up, whether it's the Third Reich or Pol Pot or wherever in history. You see wickedness rise up within some kind of like a... Uh, lab in, in human history, and it always ends up collapsing on itself because it can't exist in and of itself. It, it, it always, wickedness always sows the seeds to its own destruction. There's no future in it. Now, you take the rapture of the church when God removes Christians out of this world before the great tribulation, and then it's going to be like, all right, you don't want God, you don't like righteous people, you don't like any of that stuff, and you want the world to be the way you want it, all right, have at it. And he removes the influence of the Holy Spirit through the rapture, the influence of the Holy Spirit through God's people, and literally you end up with hell on earth. And it would have been that even apart from God's judgment. But because it is hell on earth, it requires God to judge what it is that he's going to judge. So, it's, it, you know, it's all a mess. There's the wickedness. Whenever it's allowed to just uh, go to the nth degree, it always collapses on itself. And the wicked, verse 17, shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish uh, forever. God is going to make things right in this world. And then this kind of final call of him to, uh, by David to God to put man in his place. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know uh, themselves to be but men. In other words, God, rise up and do something in the midst of this wickedness to put man in his place. And so uh, he, this is the prayer of the righteous in a context of wickedness. And there are places all around the world where you have pockets of Christians that are living in nations that are so corrupt that virtually every single position is held by the wicked. And the persecution against the righteous is active every single day. We aren't, things aren't getting better here, but they aren't even remotely in that place. But that's the portion of a lot of God's people all around the world. And so we recognize in these psalms the desire of the righteous for God to bring an end to wickedness. It has been the age-old prayer of righteous people, and it's expressed here. Again, we go back to the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray daily basis. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is an encapsulation of Psalm 9 and Psalm 10.
It is the cry of the righteous for God to come and establish his kingdom in this world and as a result to bring an end to the, the wickedness and unrighteousness. So we have our own way of praying Psalm 9 in the New Testament. And then Psalm 10 very much carries, covers the same kind of thing and the idea that the psalmist is bringing out is, Lord, why don't you do something? And so here the psalmist is stumbled by the patience of God in judging wickedness. And so uh, he is uh, confused by what he perceives to be kind of this inexplicable uh, inaction on the part of God in the face of so much wickedness that's going on uh, in the world. And so the idea is, Lord, why don't you do something? You know, If we can see it, if we would do something about it, Lord, we know you can see it, so why don't you do something uh, about it? And so this is a crisis, kind of a, an expression of a little bit of a crisis of faith that the psalmist is having. And in asking this question of God, God, why don't you do something about wickedness here in the world? The psalmist is not having, uh, he is not doubting the power of God. He's not doubting the ability of God to eradicate wickedness uh, when it, it serves him to do that. And he will do that one day. Um, again, as we've seen before in the book of Job, not all crises of faith are the same crisis. You have some people who have a crisis of faith because they do not believe in the power of God. So they look at a situation, they don't believe that God is as big as whatever has entered into their life, and they are in a panic because they think God is smaller than, than their situation and their need. And so that's one crisis of faith. They doubt the power of God. There is another crisis of faith that's a polar opposite of that. And that is where a person knows that God is powerful. They have experienced the power of God. They know that God could eradicate evil or punch evil in the nose and set it back for 40 years and do it instantly and effortlessly, but he doesn't do it. Their crisis of faith is not a doubting of the power of God. What they are doubting is the wisdom of God and the ways of God. And that's kind of the crisis that this psalmist runs into. So here is this kind of thing where we can find ourselves in that same place. God, I don't doubt your power at all. What I'm having a little trouble with is your patience. You know, so, and sometimes God is patient for you. God's, you won't believe this, but God is dealing with a bigger picture than my life in his decision making. I mean, I'm in there somewhere, and he works it all together for good. But he's dealing with a very, very big picture. So sometimes he is very patient in his judgment. Oh, boy, sometimes I want him just to drop that hammer, I'll tell you. And, oh, oh boy. But I'm glad he didn't do it before 1980 when I got in. Now that I'm in, boy, let the good times roll here. <laughs> Judge the living daylights out of him, I'll tell you. He knows so often there's a whole group just like us that'll get saved in, you know, 2012 or 2013. And so he's patient. And, and, and the, uh, uh, Peter speaks of that same things in terms of the long suffering of God. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. The only reason we sit here in this room tonight is that there's somebody else yet to get saved that will constitute the fullness of the Gentiles, and then we get raptured. Yesterday at the men's conference, two gentlemen gave their life to the Lord. It was fabulous. Two more into the kingdom. The only way it could have been better if they were the fullness of the Gentiles. And boom, we were out of here. You know, just like that. Now, that's the way to end a conference. Didn't even get to close in prayer right there in the, before the throne of God. It's going to be like that somewhere. Somebody's going to be praying. Maybe, maybe even a, a bigger miracle than we realize. They'll pray to receive the Lord watching Christian television. God will do it His way. And, and so God... He's so patient. And sometimes he, he is also patient because, uh, because a lot of people aren't going to repent and they're not going to turn. 
But then when he judges, then nobody will be able to complain that ample opportunity wasn't given to repent. I mean, I was reading just, what is a couple of weeks ago, that Charles Manson just turned 77. Sometimes I, I watch, you know, you watch sporting events, and when they'll have like the Super Bowl or major events, sometimes they'll do a, a profile on a, you know, a nine-year-old that has cancer and is dying, or these, you know, different kind of scenarios and these people that are just being heroic with this little wisp of a, of a time of a life, and then you look at him and you think of how many godly people will never live to 77, and he'll live to, he's at 77, he'll probably live to 120. But he will give an answer for 120 years if he doesn't repent and turn his life over to the Lord. Ample opportunity to repent and turn. And so God is patient that way to give people that opportunity. So he's dealing with this big picture of not just making life easier for me or for us as much as we'd like that, though that is, is, is coming our way. And so this is the crisis that he's in. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? And why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride, he's persecuting the poor. Again, this is happening all over the world tonight. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. So the wicked, are, they're boasters. He blesses, he, he blesses the greedy and he renounces the Lord. So the wicked, is, as the psalmist is looking at him, They've become so prevalent and powerful in the land that now greediness is being rewarded instead of righteousness. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. And so they just go around, I don't believe in God, I don't need to believe in God. And there's, and there's an arrogance against God and living as if God doesn't exist and then God doesn't just judge him right on the spot. Sometimes that is just like, <laughs> you just think that would be so cool though if they did that. Say, listen, if you don't get that proud look off your face while you're denouncing God and swearing about him, God's going to turn you into a heap of ashes three inches high. And then for God to do that, poof, wah. Anybody want to receive the Lord right now, huh? All the tough guys at work get on their knees right there. I thought you might, you know. We think that'd be a great witness uh, on things. But this is, and God is patient through all of it. His ways, speaking of the wicked, are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. For all his enemies, uh, as for all of his enemies, he sneers at them. And the idea is that his enemies are the righteous. He, he makes fun of the righteous. And he has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing. The idea is profanity and deceit and, uh, and oppression. He uses his mouth to deceive people or to beat people up with words. And uh, under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places. He murders the innocent. This is a cold-blooded murder because they hold the positions of power. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. And so he crouches. He lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. And he has said in his heart while he's doing all of these things, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. And that description in verses 8 through 10 is a description of just the worst kind of human being that uses their power and uses their wealth to take advantage of and oppress the poor and the powerless. And they do that because they have no fear of God. One day they will have a fear of God, but at the moment they uh, do not. And so the psalmist cries out in the face of all of this evil and this oppression, he calls on God, Arise, O Lord, O Lord, lift up your hand and do not forget the humble. So he cries out, Lord, would you actively involve yourself 
in, in uh, pushing back wickedness in the world for the sake of the humble. Why do, you, why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. So he's calling on God to rise up for the sake of his own reputation, God's reputation. And then he declares, but you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. And so he knew that God was viewing it as, as well aware of the wickedness in the world as the psalmist was. And believe me, he is. Really amazing to think about. I get, you know, I'm probably like a lot of you when I read the newspaper, I read mission reports or just things on human affairs and this whole you know, the slave trade is so massive in the world right now. The abuse of people who are just trying to make a living going to another country to become a servant or some kind of a thing. They're used, they're abused and separated or the whole sex trade thing that is going on. This world is what God sees on a daily basis everywhere around the world in every home and every apartment complex and every neighborhood and every city of the world. And the psalmist says, I know that you're aware of all of these things and more than what I can even tell you about. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. And to break a person's arm would make him incapable of committing evil. Seek out his wickedness until or to the degree that you find none. And that's the prayer. God, would you just eradicate wickedness and evil in this world. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, you, you watch the news and, and you read the newspaper and all, and it just can grieve your spirit to see what it is that we read about and we're watching happen on a, on a daily basis. And so uh, the psalmist is struggling with all of that. We struggle with all of that as well and calling on God to take care of things. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. In other words, God, you have dealt with the wicked in the past. I know you know how to do it. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear and to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed that the man of the earth may oppress no more. Now, again, the psalmist here writes about 3,000 years ago, and he writes before the revelation of the New Testament. We deal with our news uh, in a different way than the Old Testament saints did. We have a much uh, fuller uh, prophetic picture than they did. So what happens with you and I is we're waiting for the Lord to return and the rapture of the church. And it's not, sometimes people say, ah, you Christians, you've got this escapist mentality. Listen, you read Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 18 and see if you don't get an escapist mentality in terms, and that's not just the wickedness of man, that's the judgment of God, which we are not appointed to. So one of the things that we do that's different than the psalmist because our revelation is superior is that as we see the world getting more and more wicked, we look at it and process it by saying the Lord's getting, his return is drawing near. It's getting closer. It's getting closer. I talk to you people all of the time. You talk to me. Different things happen and we realize this is a sign that the Lord's return is nearing. And so this is the comfort that we receive from that. We realize that God would not have us pray a prayer in vain. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven unless he is going to fulfill that prayer. And he is going to during the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. And there will be no expression of wickedness during that thousand years when, uh, when the Messiah comes and establishes his, uh, his, his kingdom. Here we come now into Psalm uh, 11. And he says, In the Lord, now back to a Psalm of David, In the Lord I put my trust. So how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? And for look, the wicked bend their bow 
They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright at heart. And then here's the key verse of the whole psalm, verse 3. If the foundations, that's the foundation of the nation, righteous foundation of the nation, are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so the psalm answers the question in terms of what are the righteous to do when the wicked become so strong in a nation that they begin to destroy the godly foundation of a nation, the godly foundation that made the nation great for all of the flaws of the nation. Well, we know nothing of this, so we'll just deal with the psalm on a theoretical basis this evening. Now, we recognize that that's the world that we're living in, and it's the nation that we're living in. There is an assault against the godly foundation of this nation, and the assault is not going well for the righteous. There is this uh, strong coming up against, uh, 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 against that godly foundation of our nation. And it's not just true of us, but other nations in the world as well. This psalm appears to come from a season in David's life in which he was a servant to King Saul uh, when David was a young man. And while he was a servant in Saul's household, uh, Saul was kind of unraveling by the day. Um, he recognized that God had pulled his anointing off of him. He saw that God's favor was on David. And so Saul and his insecurities began to seek the death of David. But it wasn't just that. Saul was not a spiritual man at all. He did not lead the nation uh, in, in a godly way. He wasn't a godly influence the way that the prophet Samuel was. And so da- Saul is the first king of Israel. Because of his lack of spirituality, he was undermining the godly foundation of the nation of Israel at the, at the time that he was king. And so it seems to fit kind of in that place. So not only is David's life in danger, but the whole nation is going to pot uh, spiritually. And so he describes there in Verse 2, the boldness of the wicked, they bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the, stri- uh, on the string. So they're very bold and open in their assault upon the godly foundation. And then they spe- shoot secretly at the upright in heart. They become so bold that now uh, they aren't concerned at all at being uh, persecuted in any way or limited in any way by the righteous, but they have turned now to the persecuting uh, of of the righteous. And so they hunt the righteous, the upright in heart. And there in verse 3, the wicked have now become so strong that they threaten the foundations of the nation. And in Proverbs, the book of Proverbs says that righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. And that's the truth. Righteousness. No nation will rise above the character of its citizens because it's made up of its citizens, no matter what its natural resources might be. It's righteousness that in, in the people. It's righteousness that exalts a nation. And sin is a reproach. It will undermine and destroy even the greatest nation uh, in, in the world. And, and that has been proven true through thousands of years of human history. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. Today, they want us to believe in the nation that we live in, that the exact opposite is true, that sin exalts a nation, and that righteousness is a reproach uh, to any people. And they're badly mistaken about that. Again, we get back to this whole issue of the wicked, The funny thing about the wicked is they can't build anything that's of any value on their own. They can't build anything lasting on their own because there's no stability or future in wickedness. So what do they do? What are they forced to do? They are forced to take over something that they want that has been built historically by the righteous. But what they don't realize is the moment they take it over, they will destroy it because the foundation is righteousness. And they have this goofy blindness 
to the idea that somehow you can go into a building and you can remove and change the foundation without destroying the building. And they actually think that they can do it, that the building will remain what it is if I take the foundation away. And so this is the blindness with which they they operate in because they don't uh, ascribe the greatness of what God built, this great nation of this great human life that is built on this foundation. They don't recognize that there's a relationship between the foundation and what's built upon the foundation. So in their folly, they attack the foundation, not even realizing they'll destroy everything as a result. Listen, I'm hardly frustrated by it. I hardly notice it. And so David, as he's watching all of this, he asked himself the question, what in the world, there in verse 3, what can the righteous do when we find ourselves in the middle of all of this? And the first thing he tells us to do there in verse 1, he was getting counsel, flee as a bird to your mountain. So he had good people that loved him and cared about him for sure. Said, Saul is going crazy. He's going sideways. He wants to kill you. He will kill you. Run for your life. And David looks at that and he thinks that that's beneath him. And he cries out, in the Lord, I will put my trust. I got the word Lord there. You see that is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that's the name, the Old Testament for God of Yahweh or Jehovah. It's the name that God declared himself to be to Moses when he was at the burning bush. And God called him to deliver his people out of Egypt. Moses said, well, they're going to ask what your name is. What's the name of their God? And God says, I am that I am. You tell them, I am sent you. And I like that. I am that I am. He's the self-existent one, the almighty, the sovereign Lord of the universe. And, and he, does, he doesn't depend on anyone else. He does whatever he wants to do. He's just the great sovereign almighty God. And that's his name. And David said that what I'm going to do in here in the midst of all of this, even while the foundations are being attacked, I'm going to keep my trust in the Lord, and I'm not going to fear in, in the face of this. You know, we've been called uh, for time, such a time as this. Do you know why you weren't born in the 1700s? Because you were made for today. You were made for this time in human history. These circumstances that we face... There's no accident where any, any of us are here this evening and living on this earth at the time that we're living on. We've been made for this. We've been made for this battle. We've been made to be salt and light in the middle of the mess that we find ourselves in, not just here in a nation, but in the whole wide world. We've been made for this. And so we haven't been put in this world with the idea that we go find a Christian camp somewhere or a bunker or get like a Christian island and we all, you know, emigrate to that place. But we are, we are made. God has placed us where He has placed us. He is in charge of the universe, whatever it looks like in terms of the wicked. And so David looks and says, God's got a call on my life and I know what those promises are. God is, is in control. I put my trust in Him. And then he says in verse four, and I love it, the Lord is in His holy temple. God is in heaven. There are, the wicked are not in heaven. They have high positions on the earth, but they haven't yet taken the throne of God. The Lord's throne is in heaven, and so the Lord is on his, in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So we have, David recognizes, for all the problems we have in the world, we have a friend in high places. And he recognizes that the wickedness have not taken over and will never take over the only piece of real estate in all of creation that matters. And that's the throne of God. They can take over everything but the throne of God. And God can still whoop them with one hand behind his back. The one that is on that throne is the one who has power and is ultimately going to prevail. 
and our God is on that throne. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the cup, uh, be the portion of their cup. And when he speaks of fire and brimstone, uh, David is probably referring to Sodom and Gomorrah. Tremendous wickedness in that, in those cities. God destroyed them in one day. One day there was a Sodom and Gomorrah, and then one day there wasn't a Sodom and Gomorrah. It was as simple as that. And when God decided that he wanted to put an end to the wickedness of those cities, he did it effortlessly, and he did it in a moment. And so God has the ability to do that. In other words, we never lose heart in the middle of this great battle between good and bad that we're in the middle of because anything can change in a day. It just depends on what does God want to do today for his purposes. But the whole world can change in a day. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, and his countenance beholds the upright. And so the idea is we're on the right side of things and uh, remain righteous in the middle of all of this is what David is, is telling us to do, that God notices our righteous life, it blesses him, even if it's lightly esteemed uh, by the wicked around us. The future is always with the righteous. God promises there's no future with the wicked. Now this uh, Psalm 11 is a great psalm to read after uh, uh, reading the morning newspaper or watching the evening news. And because it reminds us that the future of the righteous is the one that's filled with blessing. The future of the wicked is filled with judgment. God's going to make sure of it. And even when wickedness becomes so great that only God can make sure of it. And so the importance of recognizing that and in the psalm here in Psalm 11, the idea is a kind of a rebuke to fear that can fill our hearts as the righteous in a world where wickedness seems to be prevailing at the moment. Fear is a dangerous thing in the heart of a child of God. It is, fear is very contagious. Isn't it amazing how quick we are to believe something that scares us? Now, I, ne- I never watched these slasher movies or anything like that. I never even watched them when I was a pagan. Now, that makes, you say, does that make you better than some other people? Yeah, it does. It does. I watched different kinds of worse things, but I didn't watch that. But you, you look at people and you, there, there's almost like an addiction to fear. I mean, there's just, there, it, it, it honestly does something in a person that people kind of get addicted to. And there, there is this perverse thing about our flesh, our fallenness, that we gravitate toward fear. And here you can have ten great reports about a particular area of life or how things are getting better or whatever. You hear one report that is intended to produce fear. It'll wipe out all of that times ten. Fear in general, is just a very powerful influence. In the world, the whole world that we live in operates under very strong use of two motivations, fear and greed. Our whole economy operates. Wall Street operates on the basis of fear and greed and, and gets people to make good decisions and ba- or bad decisions uh, under those influences. And so there's a lot of that that's in our world. And the Bible says the fear of man is a snare. God never uses the fear of man. Fear of God is a good thing. But fear and greed, and we're talking about fear right here, that's something we have to be very, very careful of, even among God's people. When Caleb and Joshua came out of spying out the promised land with the other ten spies, the other ten spies brought an evil report. This is terrible. Anakim are this big. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. They could walk on us. They're so big. We're going to get destroyed and the whole thing. And then Joshua and Caleb said, no, we'll go in right now. We've got God's promises. God is still on the throne. Psalm 11, Psalm 11 hasn't been written yet, but Psalm 11. 
Read it before you go into the promised land and when you come out of the promised land. And so they're saying, let's go and do it. And the entire three million people believe the fearful report. Two men. Two men out of three million among God's people had faith. That's how strong the influence of fear is. And yet, fear is never... When we come under the, the influence of fear, we are never seeing that circumstance correctly. So we're about to make terrible, terrible decisions. God is still on the throne, and he is in charge. And his promises are always going to have the final say related to our lives. They will always be yea and amen. So you uh, news junkies, there's your psalm, Psalm 11, right for you. You just circle uh, uh, the, the number, underline the entire thing, and make a good friend of it so it keeps you sane in the middle of what you're in the middle of. Well, we'll stop there tonight. We'll pick it up in uh, Psalm 12 next time. I won't be here next week. Uh, Karen and I are going to take a week off or so. And, um, uh, but, uh, boy, are you guys in for a treat morning and evening. Gail Irwin's going to be with us next week, so we'll never complain about that. So... So invite your friends that you wouldn't normally invite uh, when I'm here. So you've got to come and see Gail. But anyway, it'll be a great time. And, and I know you'll be nice to him. He's easy to be nice to. But So we'll pick it up the following week, Lord willing. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for these songs. And thank you that they're right where we live and they minister to us. And We thank you for the privilege of just being able to listen to David and others grapple with all of the things that they're grappling with and to realize that we're not alone as we grapple with those same things and and then to be spoken to about how to handle our fears and how to handle all of these emotions that uh, we go through in this life. And so we thank you for these psalms and And maybe you've made a psalm or two here tonight, a special friend to bring perspective to somebody's life this evening, and it's accomplished its purpose. And we thank you for just what these psalms do in our lives. Thank you for this time to be able to study your word. And we really do thank you for these Sunday nights where we get a chance to do it together with one another as a church family and with others that are in the same place that we're in. And it's just wonderful to do it with you, Lord, and with them. And we thank you for the treat that it's been again this evening. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.